Hey, as you're grabbing a seat, it's so good to see all of you. Um, could I ask you, would you help welcome someone next to you that you didn't come with? Say hi, welcome to church. Glad to see you. If there's someone you don't know, please introduce yourself, if you would. It's so good to see all of you today, and God has given us a little little window, a little break from the rain, so we could have our lunch fellowship today. And um, lunch is not just about what we're going to eat, but it's about the fellowship part that's so important. And so I want to encourage all of you to stick around um, and have lunch and uh, approach someone you don't know and just say hi or approach someone that you haven't caught up with and just catch up with them and uh, enjoy our time together. There is something very special about eating together, as the Lord Jesus did often with the people he encountered. And so we want to do that today. Um, and so we have a little bit of time uh, before the rain seems like we'll come back. So we're looking forward to seeing you out there. Uh, in today's message, there is a little phrase in this psalm that it says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. In verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And we're going to kind of circle around that and center that as the main message. Today I want to talk to you about uh, having your soul, uh, a calmness and a quietness there. I don't know what you're going through, uh, but there might be some turmoil. There might be conflict within, where everything on the outside looks okay and feels okay, and where we might portray that we're okay, but on the inside, there's some kind of unrest, uneasiness. And if you could be calm and quiet in our souls, if you could have that, um, how wonderful that would be. And we've all encountered people um, who have been a, kind of a quiet confidence. There's a comfortable, uh, they're, they're comfortable with themselves, they're comfortable with others. You approach them and um, you're comfortable with them. And there's something about that. Their soul is calm and quiet. They're not the most charismatic or the funniest or the loudest, but there's something about them. Uh, and we, we notice that and we pick up on that and we like to be around those types of people. Here we see this and uh, Years back, Gordon MacDonald, in his book, he talks about what he calls the sinkhole syndrome, the sinkhole syndrome. Obviously, we don't have sinkholes popping up in Southern California or in California, but more in Florida often. And when he describes the sinkhole syndrome, as he says that it is the inner life versus the outer life, the visible versus the invisible, right? the material and the soul. And the outer life is like a house that is built on sand, the the, the paint is nice, the layout is nice, the fixtures are nice, and you go in and you say, well, what a beautiful house, the chandelier is nice, and everything in there is so beautiful, but some little thing happens, a little storm or something, and all of a sudden, the sinkhole comes and everything collapses. The outer life, it represents work, achievements, our money, our status, our homes, our possessions, all of those things. Those things are visible, those things are tangible, those things are measurable, so our attention goes to those things. We put our effort into those things because everyone else can see it, I can see it. But the inner life, the soul, it's invisible. You can't measure it. You can't tell if it's better or worse and there's no uh, graph or anything that we can use. No one else notices, and so sometimes we neglect this. And yet when the inside is now neglected, everything on the outside could crumble uh, at a time, any given notice. 
Uh, it is Oscar Wilde who says, I was no longer captain of my own soul. Sometimes when we are achieving things and doing well and we are busy, we might say ourselves, and we might make this confession, I am no longer the captain of my own soul. My soul is dictated by something else. Today we look at this passage here. Uh, there's a description here of coming to God and having this calm and quiet soul. Um, the first verse describes the things that keep us from having it, right? So he says in the negative, my heart is not filled, my eyes are not raised, I do not. These are the three negatives. The things that keep someone from having a calm and quiet soul. And so we're going to look at the first part, the heart, the eyes, the things, the things that could keep us from having this, that bring about a conflict within us, and then how the gospel of Christ fulfills all those things that our soul really needs. So the first part here, we see that the heart is uh, something we have to pay attention to. The heart is prideful. It is tricky. It's prideful. And oftentimes, we, are, we ourselves are deceived by this. It says here in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. So he says in the negative, it's not lifted up. In order to have this calm and this quiet and this connection with God, my heart must not be lifted up, but yet oftentimes it is. The heart in the Bible is the seat of all the emotions and the will. It's the depth of a person. And oftentimes, it is so prideful. It says here... Uh, Throughout the Bible, it talks about the condition of the heart. Uh, it says in Obadiah, verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. This is God judging his people. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? It says your heart has deceived you. You're fooling yourself is what it's saying. You're believing a lie, and it is a person that says in their hearts that they have something to be proud of. And he says, he describes them as someone who lives in the clefts of the rock, the dwelling, the lofty dwelling, and they talk to themselves, and oftentimes it is the prideful who will talk to themselves, who will bring me down to the ground? And in the very next verse, it is God who says, I will bring you down, because he is against the, pro the, pride, uh, the proud. Uh, you think about this for a moment, right? This, this is where our heart um, suffers because when a person has nothing to be proud of and they try to boast, it is really stressful. And before they know it, it leads them to sin, exaggeration, lies, and so on, trying to impress others. And you see this, I remember um, as a kindergartner, and every day we would have a nap time. And I realize now, in hindsight, it's the way of teacher taking a little break, right? But it, all right, boys and girls, it's nap time after lunch. And I remember um, we would have nap times. And then after this 20, 30-minute nap time, the teacher would say, okay, everyone, wake up. And then we would all, I remember, uh, we would all exaggerate our wake-ups. Oh, oh, you know, and then oh, we would wake up a bunch of, like, five, six-year-olds. And then the teacher would always ask every day, I remember, he would say, all right, boys and girls, did anyone have any dreams Everyone is now trying to show off about their dreams, right? And you know no one had any dreams because everyone was like, you would make eye contact, right? Kind of almost as awkward as making eye contact when you're praying at church, you know, with someone. Uh, but it's just, and then, you know, everyone's, oh, I had a dream. Well, okay, Steve, what was your dream, you know? 
previous kid said he was like Batman, you know, and this and that. And I, I had a dream. What was your dream? I was Superman, you know, and I was better, and I was flying. And like, okay, okay, okay. And the teacher was like, okay, okay, that's enough. Okay, no more. Um, the person that has nothing to be proud of and yet is trying to boast, there's a conflict in the heart. And before they know, they start deceiving themselves, thinking maybe I am better. Maybe I deserve more. Maybe I am so important. And I am more important than the other person. It is in pride that is often, uh, all the time, is in comparison. It, com- it happens in comparison. You know, you, uh, the psychologist Martin uh, Seligman, a brilliant psychologist, he has a, uh, a theory about what we have replaced uh, w- with these important things. He talks about the church, faith, community, family, and friends, all the important things in life. He says, we now today have replaced those things with one word, with self. And that has come to our demise. And so we start saying things oftentimes like self-care, self-expression, love yourself, my truth, standing up for yourself. And as we keep saying those things, we can deceive ourselves to think, I deserve more. Why should I serve them? Why should I go exert myself? Why should I pay attention to them when it's all about me? It's about me, me, me. And the heart will say, you need to keep impressing others if you want to be prideful. The heart says, you got to keep up with others if you want to show off. The heart says, what have you done for me? What have you accomplished lately? And so all the past things, they don't measure up. And this is the problem of pride in the heart. The second thing that's mentioned here are the eyes. It says in verse 1, the second, so the second part, my eyes are not raised too high. Eyes that are raised too high. The eyes that are haughty as it's used oftentimes in the Bible. A word that we don't use too much today. Uh, haughty is the idea and the dictionary just defines it this way. Blatantly proud, having or showing an attitude of superiority and contempt for people, for things perceived to be inferior. It's literally is looking down on someone. They are perceived in my eyes as worse than me, less than me. And I think I'm better than, and to have contempt for people. How do we treat someone that is there working to serve us, the waiter, uh, the ballet parker, whatever it is, and we... How do we talk down to someone? How do we talk to someone who works for us, is below us in our companies and in our work? The eyes are haughty. The eyes can say, I look down on them. I am above them. I look down on them. The eyes, the haughty eyes are now a manifestation of the prideful heart. When the heart is proud, it can fake it a little bit. But it starts coming out before they know. Those haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked are sin. Haughty eyes and proud heart. These come side by side. So again, it's mentioned in our reading today in Psalm 131. The heart, no one knows what is going on in the heart, but now how that prideful person views others is seen in the way they view people. Looking down, dwelling in the highest places, considering others inferior, themselves superior. Maybe because they have a little more money. Maybe they went to a little bit more schooling. Maybe because they're a little bit older. Or maybe because they're a little bit younger. 
There are so many reasons we come up with, and pride lies to us and says, you're better because of this. You're worth more because of that. And yet, before the eyes of God, we are all on even point. The third thing that keeps our souls from calm and quiet is trying to fill our souls with things. We see this here. We take things and we try to fill our souls with it. We see that as the third point. We see it in the last part of verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I do not occupy myself. I do not fill myself with things. The latest things, the gadgets, the newest things, the expensive things, the name brand things so much that I do not just say it's about the things. I think the psalmist is just telling us I don't fill myself with things when I have to fill myself with God. I do not go and just look at the things in order to think I am worth something more because I have these things. There's nothing wrong with something nice. There's nothing wrong with possessing something, but it is very slippery because we often think, if I can have that, I am better. I am more attractive. I am worth more. I get the attention of people. People envy me if I have that. Yet we get only, our souls are only fed from God. It finds a satisfaction only from God. Why is it that we have an insatiable hunger for the things of this earth? And it gets old and they come out every year. The marketing comes out all the time with the latest, newest things. You say, oh, I want to get that, you know. I want to get this next thing. We get our, our souls get its fill from relationships, God and people. You know, we, we know and scientists tell us that uh, uh, the brain chemical, right, oxytocin, kicks in when there's human interaction, when there's eye contact, when there's a physical touch. And so sometimes, right, when you meet with people, you have a good lunch or a good dinner with your friends, and you come home, and there's a, a sense of euphoria, a sense of joy. You don't get that from the things. You don't get that from looking at pictures on a screen. And now today we have replaced the living people, the living God, with the things. And the more we look at it, it, nothing happens. There is no joy. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. These things that the world considers too great, too marvelous. Why is it that in the Bible, so many times, material things are always opposed to God? They're contrasted with God or against God. Because we today are tempted to now replace God with the material things. I mean, I just want to share a couple of verses. First Timothy 6.17, right? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What? But on God. God is on the other side. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here is God again. God is in opposition to these things. God is the better option than the money or the riches of this world. Matthew 6.24, that we know so well, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve 
God and money. Because our souls and our hearts and our pride want to take the things and elevate it to fill the place where only God could satisfy. We want to elevate those things as the, the, the gods of our day. And so it is the pride of our hearts, it is now the haughty eyes, it is the things that we try to fill our souls with that keep us from God, that keep us from a calm and quiet soul. And I want to encourage us today with the gospel of Christ, that the gospel of Christ is what the soul desperately needs. More than the pride of our heart, more than looking down on others and feeling better because I have a little bit more. More than the possessions and the things that we have, thinking there comes my security, there comes my hope. It is the gospel in Christ that humbles us and yet gives us a hope as well. We see there that the gospel gives us humility, first of all. We see this in verse 2. There is that phrase, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So there's a picture here, uh, a clear picture of a weaned child, a child that's a little bit bigger. Uh, sometimes you see a newborn, and uh, some of us might have had babies who were like very colicky, and they would cry often. And there is nothing stressful for new parents as when a baby, a newborn is crying, and they don't communicate back to you why they are crying. And sometimes they'll cry for 30 minutes straight, and it is just stressful for everyone. And so you go down the list, and you try all the basic things, right? Okay, are they hungry? Are they thirsty? Do they have a temperature? Check their diaper. Okay, they must be sleepy. Please go to sleep. Please go to sleep. And then if those things don't work, we rush off to the doctor. What's wrong? What's wrong? The picture we have here is a child that's mature, but also in the Bible, there is a specific mention of a baby that is weaned at the age of being weaned, somewhere between 18 months to age five. It's mentioned in Genesis 21 when Abraham made a great feast for the day that Isaac was weaned. Why? Because until that point, the infant mortality rate was so high. And so it was a sign of finally having some strength, finally now making it this far. You know, in certain cultures, there are celebrations at certain ages, and all of it kind of goes back to somehow that they've made it this far. And pe pe uh, parents will throw elaborate parties, even though the kid cannot have a steak, they'll go to the steakhouse or they'll order food, and we're going to celebrate that you've made it this far. There's a picture of a strong humility here. The baby is still very dependent. The child is fully dependent, and yet there is a sense of now they're stronger. And it is in our weakness or in our humility that we find calm and quiet in our souls. It is never in our pride. The pride conflicts with who we are and who God is all the time. The moment that we are proud, that we are at war with God, there is no way to have inner peace. Because we are fighting with God. And the moment we come humbly before God, as a child that's weaned, just calm, satisfied with all that they have. So 
Now I'm at peace with God. I have a calmness, a quietness to my soul in this way. You know, it is often in our weakness uh, that God strengthens us. It is in our weakness we depend on God more. It is when the trials come our way, we pray more, we seek God more, and somehow God is glorified through that. He is not glorified through our strengths, rarely, because our pride gets in the way. It is said that Beethoven created most of his greatest work, if not all of it, when he was completely deaf. The Ninth Symphony, which he had done uh, entirely, was all in his head, right? Because he was completely deaf. And he was uh, blocked off from outside influences and distractions. And it was in his weakness that he now created. You look at the greatest entrepreneur slash evangelist of history is the Apostle Paul, arguably. Apostle Paul brought this new thing called the gospel of Christ to the ends of the world. And 2,000 years later, we're here. And churches are all everywhere. There are billions of Christians and forms of Christianity because of one man's message. And what was his message? Did it come off as just strength and pride? No, it came off as weakness. He spoke of his weakness. He spoke of the thorn in his flesh. Think about that. What is so appealing about someone's weakness? And yet for the human being, the listener, we say, I understand that. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. I understand that because all of us come in a posture of weakness. All of us have experienced weakness. And so his message that set the world on fire was one of weakness. And we could also argue that he was probably the most confident, secure, calm, quieted, soul. Opposition didn't change him. Physical trials didn't deter him. He pursued God with this type of confidence. The gospel gives us hope, secondly. Our souls find peace when we realize our hope is set. It is when we start worrying about the temporal things, right? that uh, our anxiety kicks up. What should I do? What if this happens? What if that happens? Um, And our soul gets conflicted. The gospel gives us this hope. It's mentioned here in the last verse, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Luke who is mentioned, they're both mentioned by name. Israel is mentioned by name. And they are commanded to hope in the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This is his proper name. Hope in Yahweh. Not just in anything else, not in something that's out there, but in the name of God. And so both parties are named. Let's be clear, who needs to hope in who? We often say, oh, you're set. Your life is set. Oh, man, you have a great career. Your life is set. But really, the one that is set is the one that has their hope in the Lord. You know, when you're younger, um, let's go back to age uh, 12. You always have something to look forward to, don't you? You know, when I, I, we catch ourselves at age 12 looking forward. Oh, man, wait till you get to high school. High school is going to be awesome. All right? You're going to join a team. You could play sports or join a club, um, you, you'll get your license, 
you know, and you could drive yourself, and you're almost like a grown-up, you know, and think about high school, how wonderful high school is. But think about yourself. Remember when you were in high school, what did you look forward to? College. Oh, college is the life, right? You can go to the restroom without raising your hand and getting permission. You could sleep in. You could skip class if you wanted to. You could schedule your classes to start at 2 p.m. every day if you wanted to. Oh, this is great. And we say, oh, college is great. And then when you're in college, what do you look forward to? Working. Oh, finally, I'm not broke, right? I'm not just eating the old food and the leftovers. I'm going to have some money. I'm going to have a job. I'm going to have an office. I'm going to have a job. This is great. I'm not dependent on my parents. And we keep looking forward. Oh, it'll be great. Maybe the next step, I get married. The next step, I buy a house. But, you know, there comes at a certain point where we stop talking about what's ahead. Right? You get to that midlife area, you say, ah, oh, boy, there's not uh, much going up ahead. And what do we do? We start going back to the past, and we catch ourselves saying, saying things like, man, when I was your age, boy, that sure was good, right? And we tell young people, oh, enjoy college now, man, because when I was in college, I could play basketball and this, and my metabolism was so good, and boy, my skin was so clear, and it was so good. Oh, that, that's the good old times. Oh, gosh, wait, when you're in your 20s, oh, before you have kids, it's great. Life is great, all this freedom. And you catch yourself just looking back. Because people today say, I have nothing much to look forward to. Retirement? What's after retirement? But yet, as the people of God, we always have something to look forward to. And it is a hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And it says here in verse 3, from this time forth and forevermore. And just as a 12-year-old is looking forward to high school and college and work and so on, we could continually look forward. Things are going to be okay. My pain will be gone. My tears will be wiped away. I will be in the house of the Lord forever. I will go to a better place. And we are always looking forward. We are a people of hope. The gospel gives us this kind of hope. It is Arthur Brooks, the Harvard social scientist, who writes about, and he has a term that he coined called the striver's curse. Striver's curse. The driven person, the one who strives, the one who makes the money, the one that is a type A. And he talks about these people. And he says that there is a source of anguish, a curse that is about them because they become increasingly unsatisfied. Their successes uh, are lacking. And one of the things he points out is that people that work on Wall Street, people that are just driven for money, they work hard. Their career peaks, he says, at age 36 to 40. And that's the highlight of their career. And after 40, they can't keep up. They can't do it. It's too stressful. It's too high paced. And then what? And then there's disappointment. And then everything seems like a failure. It's like an athlete who has to retire before the age of 30. And you see grown men and athletes, when they retire, they're in tears. They could break their arm, they will not cry. But when they are now done, they're in tears. Because they get to a point in life, they say, my best is no longer good enough. My efforts, I don't have the strength for anymore. 
And so we find our hope in God. We put our hope in Him. What is your soul look like today? What's the, the conflict going on on the inside? Is everything on the outside like a beautiful home, yet it's resting on shifting sand, a sinkhole underneath? We come back to the gospel. God humbles us. I just want to wrap up with this thought. The gospel humbles us completely. It's not by any good works that we're saved. So none of us are considered better than one another. And so we're humbled. The doctrine of original sin plagues us all. We're all sinful before God. We have nothing to boast about in front of Him. But secondly, we look at this. We have all the strength that we need because God has given us all that we need. And we cannot lose it. We are not disqualified from it. It is done by the good work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we find our now hope in him. A hope that is eternal. A hope that will last forever. And so we find it in him. My prayer for us is that uh, during this new year, you would take account of your soul. And pause and think of yourself and ask yourself late at night before you sleep or early in the morning in your quiet times, how's my soul today? Has pride uh, snuck in there? How are my eyes today? How do I view other people? How's my soul? What are the things that I'm gravitating towards that only God can fill when we go to him? And this is my prayer for us all. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to hope in you. You are our hope from this time forth and forevermore. You give us all that we need. Lord, our hearts, we have nothing to boast about other than the cross of Christ. Our eyes have no one to look down upon but to look up to you. And our souls, Lord, are not satisfied with the things of this earth, but for you. And in you. So, Lord, would you calm our souls? Would you quiet our souls? Would you give us this shalom, peace within us that is only found in you, Jesus Christ? Hope has a name in Jesus. And so, Lord, we find our hope in you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.